You're listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Lyric Opera of Chicago music director Sir Andrew Davis, soprano Nicole Cabell, tenor Charles Castronovo, and baritone Stéphane de Gueux are backstage at Lyric. What you do is you just go and do every piece in the, in, in the opera as beautifully and as well as you can, and then it takes care of itself. And so I think it's a piece that reflects all aspects of of life and of Mozart's personality, I think that's the most important thing. I think it's a piece you take absolutely as it is, but the range of emotions is incredible. Thank you for listening to this edition of Backstage at Lyric. This time we present an audio transcript of the Lyric Opera Discovery Series session from Mozart's The Magic Flute. For those of you not familiar with the Discovery Series, it's a series of panel discussions with the singers, conductors, directors, and other creative talent from Lyric's season. Lyric does one session per opera, and they typically happen a few days prior to the opening of each production. The Discovery Series is open to the public and is a terrific way to get up close and personal with Lyric's artists. All of the Discovery Series sessions are recorded and featured as part of this podcast series. For more information and to purchase tickets, visit lyricopera.org. And now let's turn things over to lyric dramaturg and broadcaster Roger Pines for this Discovery Series session for Mozart's The Magic Flute. So we have a truly captivating panel for you this evening, beginning with our music director and conductor of the Magic Flute, Sir Andrew Davis. FYI, tonight he's actually conducting the final performance of Boris Kudinov, and he'll soon be finishing the run of Ariadna of Noxos. Um, Following Lyric, his operatic activity will include... The Mets, Don Giovanni, Canadian Opera Company's Puccini Zemlinski Double Bill, Santa Fe Opera's Arabella, and the Bergen Festival's Damnation of Faust. He's also going to be at the Besançon Festival and the major orchestras of Melbourne, Toronto, Rotterdam, and London, among others. We have with us Ryan Opera Center alumna Nicole Cabell, who's returning to us as Pamina, and that was a triumph for her at both the Met and the Deutsche Oper Berlin. It's her sixth leading role at Lyric, where she was most recently Michaela, Countess Alma Viva, and Adina. She began this current season as the Countess in Montreal. She has starring roles coming up later this season in Palm Beach, Tokyo, and Santa Fe. Earlier this year, she sang uh, Ravel's Scheherazade with the Cincinnati Symphony. She's soon to be heard with the BBC Symphony Orchestra in London, the San Diego Symphony, and the Cincinnati May Festival. Our two leading men are both making their lyric opera debuts. American tenor Charles Castronovo has won major successes in Mozart, Belcanto, Verdi, and Puccini in prestigious houses all over the world. He began the current season in Vienna singing Traviata at the Staatsoper. Then he went on to Budapest to sing Rigoletto. Following lyric, he goes to Covent Garden for Cosi, San Diego for Don Pasquale, and Madrid for the coronation of Popea. While he's in Madrid, he'll appear in recital at the Teatro Real. He's also appeared with the major companies in Berlin, Paris, Brussels, and Monte Carlo. At Los Angeles Opera, he created the title role in Daniel Catan's Il Postino, which I hope a lot of you saw last week. 
which, because it was telecast on PBS. For French baritone Stéphane Degout, who's our Papageno, highlights of the current season include his signature role of Peleas at the Opéra National de Paris, where he's also appearing in Rameau's Hippolyte et Arici. He's also this season in Vienna for Ambroise Thomas' Hamlet. He attracted international attention initially at the Aix-en-Provence Festival as Papageno, which he sung in Paris and at the Met. In addition to six major roles in Paris, he's been heard at Covent Garden, Kleinborn, Salzburg, Brussels, he also appears on DVD in Cosi Fantute from Aix-en-Provence and in Peleas from Vienna. So please joining, join me in welcoming to the Discovery Series Sir Andrew Davis, Nicole Cabell, Charles Castronovo, and Stéphane Degout. For a change, I'm not going to give you the 60-second rundown of the story because this is the magic flute, for heaven's sake. Yeah. Well, so, we were wondering how you're going to do it anyway. Yeah, exactly. So I want to ask everyone, in your experience, is there anything like this piece in the rest of Mozart or indeed in the entire repertoire, for that matter? Does it stand completely on its own? I mean, Andrew, I think of uh, an opera that we did several years ago, The Midsummer Marriage of Tippett, which definitely sort of took its cue from the magic flute. Yes, and there's also another opera we did even more recently, which is Die Frau und Schatten of Strauss. I mean, they're both similar kind of stories about, you know, transformation. And, uh, of course, Tippett's is in highly Jungian terms, and we have all these sort of archetypal figures hovering around, but... um, yeah, but it certainly is, at the time, it was extraordinarily original. Although, there was another piece written at the same time by a composer whose name escapes me called The Magic Bassoon. Did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> um, let me ask the rest of you, does, do you, do other pieces come to mind when you think of the magic flute, or is it just so completely unique? I've played a couple... Princes, I can think of, but uh, <laughs> not so magical, and definitely no uh, magical uh, instruments, that's for sure. Yeah, It's very unique. Right, I mean, I can't think of a, a lot of pieces that have the mix of comedy and drama and symbolism uh, in such a compact little period as this opera. I mean, musically, of course, there are c- comparable operas, but uh, dramatically, it's definitely in a class of its own. There is a great deal of fun in this piece, obviously, but is there also something that you would call genuine profundity? And if so, where do you think that emerges? Anyone? Well, I think definitely with, um, for example, when you get to the men's chorus, I, I'm always very moved by this part, uh, the men's chorus, the uh, Oisis und Osiris. In Act uh, Two. Yeah, in Act Two. Um, there is a, a weight to it, you know, about a, a young man, you know, turning into an adult, a man. But he can not only do it himself, but he does it with a woman on equal terms, which is, I think, the real idea behind the behind this show. Um, it seems like it's a man world. It's a man's world, but it would be nothing without a woman, which is James Brown, actually. But, but uh, <laughs> James Brown said that. But uh, it, that's basically what it is, and which is, I think is, um, it's very heavy. What is, what is the text of that chorus? Do you recall what oh, is gosh, being sung? No, I don't remember. Andrew, exactly do you remember in, in what that stroke? chorus is about? Well, well um, of course, all the, the men's chorus um, things are 
are part of the, as it were, the Masonic aspect of the piece, which is clearly very important. Mozart was a Mason. And um, um, so the whole initiation um, thing that Tamino goes through is, is clearly derives partly from Masonic ritual. Um, and, and it's all about um, attaining wisdom and strength and, and all those things. Um, and there's a great seriousness about the Masonic music. There, there are several other wonderful Mozart pieces. There's this fantastic piece called the Masonic Funeral Music, which I, I, I do occasionally in concerts because you know it was one of those pieces you finish and the audience goes. <laughs> but but it's quite quite beautiful. And then there's a Masonic Cantata also that he wrote. But um, I I think the extraordinary thing about this piece is that there is profundity in some of the non-Masonic music too. Um, obviously, you know, the three ladies are, are figures of fun and the Queen of the Night starts out, you think, oh, this poor woman. And actually, I find the first part of her aria, her first aria, when she's describing how her daughter was taken away from her, extremely moving piece. Um, and it's in G minor, which for Mozart is a very sort of personal, tragic key. Um, uh, and um, so when I first conducted this piece many years ago, uh, <coughs> I was sort of, I went through this thing, is it, is the Masonic part, the, you know, the serious part, the most important part, or is the comic part the most important? And, and, I, and after a while I thought, what are you talking about? What you do is you just go and do every piece in the, in, in the opera as beautifully and as well as you can, and then it takes care of itself. And this sort of going to and fro between the, between the serious and the comic is, well, it's actually rather true to life, isn't it? I mean, don't we just sort of go from one to the other with sudden jumps quite often ourselves? And so I think... I think it's a piece that reflects all aspects of, of life and of Mozart's personality. I think that's the most important thing because we know he was, a, he was a real prankster. I mean, he was uh, with a rather bawdy sense of humour, as we know from some of his letters. And um, uh, So I think it's a piece you, you, you take absolutely as it is, but there, there are, it, the, the, the range of emotions is inc- incredible. When I think of the word profound and put that together with a magic flute, the first scene that occurs to me is actually the scene between Tamino and the speaker. Because, I mean, Charles, how do you view that scene in terms of of content? Because I feel that it has something very significant to say. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the, the main flashpoint where you see youth versus age or inexperience versus wisdom and uh, all of these things. You know, Tamino is very impulsive. It's everything is, you know, he, he, he doesn't stop to think about anything. And the, the speaker is there to test him, calm him down, show him, you know, that other way in the path, uh, you know, the fork in the road. And uh, it happens within one scene. Mozart's a complete genius, as everyone knows, but uh, it happens... Um, in the most subtle way, you know, just with a few chords here and there placed in the right place. Um, and uh, it happens, you know, he, he, he finds himself still wondering at the end of that scene, 
you know, how can I understand all of this? That is, you know, everything just opens up to him, and uh, it's just very, it's very new to him. So that's uh, that's the I think the main point for Tamino anyway, where he really um, finds out that life isn't how it how he thought it was. You know, I don't know where he's a, he's a prince. He's probably from you know, some palace somewhere and he had everything he wanted and everything's fine. So now it's the first time where he has to question life and himself. So that is profound. Yeah. Um, Stefan and Nicole, are there moments in your role where there is a kind of depth that you feel is particularly special and, and moving to an audience? Well, I would say as Papageno, as I only take care of the comedy of the, this piece but there are, there are many moments in, uh, in Papageno's part with uh, some depth and some very serious uh, introspection would be yes. maybe a bit strong for Papageno but still it's the beginning of introspection let's say What are those moments? They are uh, He's, well, he's following him. He does try to commit suicide. <laughs> yeah, well. true. And uh, maybe if it's just to provoke a reaction of someone else, it's still a bit dangerous. If, some, if nobody would answer him, will he really kill himself or not? No. <laughs> uh, but, well, yes, he, as soon as he meets him, Tamino, he also... Go. He's also going through that. Uh, how do you say? Prüfung and uh, no, trials. Trials. His way. He 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 completely missed everything. But he's also in this process to think. It's the first time he thinks, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, by manner, <laughs> he gets a little philosophical and by manner, I think you know, mm. prompted by this is our duet um, between. Pamina, my character, and Papageno. They sort of speak about the love and the virtues of it and how it's sort of the savior of all things and the way it should be. It's a moral of the story type of thing. So, um, but yes, of course, with Pamina, she, has, she goes from being a girl to a woman in the course of this opera. You know, she's protected, sort of like... Tamino in the respect that she doesn't, she hasn't been out in the world. And her first experience, of course, is being abducted. <laughs> so um, she thinks this is horrible and, God, you know, I, I don't know who to trust, but, okay, I guess I'll trust this guy. Oh, maybe, maybe not. And she sort of trusts people like Papageno right away, and then she has, this is, works for her, but then, of course, the whole relationship with her mother, everything falls apart. So she goes from... Um, being completely forlorn um, to finding hope in love that kind of betraying her as well her her hope of love with Tamino finding it again it's just a roller coaster ride with uh, with um, Pamina and uh, yeah she has a suicide scene as well and I, I don't know I mean it's it's debated whether or not she would actually do it too I've done productions of this where I'm about to stab, you know, about to kill myself, and I'm stopped by these spirits. And in this production, it's a little bit ambiguous. So um, it's kind of, I guess, up to the audience to find out how much she's willing to to do that. But yeah, she kind of. Yeah, the three boys spend the opera tr- stopping people from committing suicide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I want I want to ask our three singers to see if you can articulate how Mozart actually characterizes your role 
purely musically, because there's no way we would ever mistake Papageno's music for Tamino's or for any other characters, and we would never mistake Pamina's music for anybody else. It, it so completely belongs to her. So what is it musically that just sort of defines these individual characters? Well, uh, Papageno is a bit special as uh, Shikanedo wrote it for himself. And he was not a singer, but an actor. So able to sing. But there is nothing difficult in Papageno's music. Uh, the you are, mean uh, vocally? Yeah. Vocally, yeah. yes. And... Uh, Yes, it's the most easy part in the opera. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we, we cast him because he couldn't sing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm the, I'm the best one because I'm, <laughs> I'm the worst singer ever. <laughs> the thing is, when, the, when you hear somebody sing his lines of by Menon exquisitely, even though there's no extreme of range about it, you realize why so many people who sing this role of Papageno are singers of the song literature, um, whether in your case, you know, your native repertoire or German repertoire. The point is, I've, every great Papageno that I can think of has been a song recitalist. Do you, do, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do, but I never thought about uh, Well, that duet is special, actually, because it's more going into the Pamina's music than staying in Papageno's music. The three arias are more... Uh, Sprechgesang would be the most close definition, but, well, didn't exist exactly as it is now, but uh, it's more text, a lot of text put on uh, easy the, notes. Yeah, the, the two, two of the songs are just simple... I mean, the arias are just simple songs and three, three verses. But, um, and in the second, of course accompanied differently. And then the challenge becomes varying the verses from one to the other to make it interesting to, to listen to. Um, Charles, how do you look at, at Tamino musically? Well, I would first off, the, the, the main characteristic of, uh, of Tamino's music is that it's very noble. Um, of course, he is a prince and all that stuff, but uh, the music itself, you can see that although he's a youth and impulsive and everything like that, the music is very noble. That's the main thing I would say. How does it achieve that effect? Uh, it has, um, I would say, it has very arched lines, you know. Um, uh, it's, it's very angular, but in the nicest way I can think of, you know. It's not Italian, scoopy, moopy stuff, you know. It's, it's very, it has a real arch, and it always has a, a direction, uh, has a little fire, but uh, it does have fire all the time. Even, you know, you say, it's very fiery, but always elegant and noble, always. That would, I would say that was the, the main thing about his music. Um, uh, second off, I would say um, the trickiest part about Tamino is that it should sound very easy. I mean, that's what the listener should get, is that it's an easy, beautiful, elegant sound. But the, the fact is, is that it's just very tricky. The tessitura is quite high. Uh, it doesn't have any big high notes. It, it just sits high. And uh, so to, to make yourself sound like it is easy is, uh, is hard, <laughs> basically, is what I mean. You know, and, and it happens, it, it can be frustrating sometimes, you know, when you sing this Bildnis and you say, wow, okay, I did really well. It's very tough at the end, and everyone goes... 
It's very pretty. And you know, you think, did you know what I just did? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, and uh, you know, but, but that's the point of it, actually. People are supposed to say, ah, oh, that's beautiful, and let's continue, you know. It's not one of those showstoppers. So, you know, if you don't get too much applause, you know that everything was in the order of the story, and you just keep going, you know. So, but it can be slightly frustrating sometimes. <laughs> Nicole, do you, do you feel the same way about your aria? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you said so many things that I was going to say oh, I'm about sorry. no, no about <laughs> my character in terms of music, uh, the music being sort of noble, and in her case, you know, it's very, um, I'd say it's exposed. There's not a lot of there's no no sort of heavy orchestration in it. Again, it's all about these long lines. There's a very high tessitura, which I think I don't know if that sort of speaks to the age of her or if that's just I don't know why the tessitura seems to sit much higher than some of Mozart's other sort of noble roles like uh, Countess uh, Don Elvira, but it does. And again, I will sort of point to the youth of the character and say maybe that's the reason. But um, I think the sort of exposure, not having the sort of um, quick or heavy uh, orchestration, which you know Mozart, if anything, would have like um, a lot of staccato or maybe some runs to to um, indicate a character with a little bit more um, energy or or spunk or whatever. But anyway, yeah, her lines are very very um, even, smooth, and exposed. And I I think maybe that's because she's a very honest character. Um, she, she of course, is noble, so I think the music is similar. And I'm going to echo what you said, too. It's Pamina and Tamino are, like, the most thankless roles <laughs> in the Mozart repertoire. I'm serious. Although, if you do a really good Archifuse, people, I think, people really appreciate it. Right, but you a... don't sort of get the excitement, which is totally, I yeah. think ultimately the way it should be um but it's so much more difficult i can sing some arias that are easy and with a couple high notes and people go crazy but you sing this kind of very delicate and um sort of exposed and has to be almost perfect you have to make it as perfect as possible and and then it ends Right, it ends on a yeah. That's it. So, so a downer. So, if it had the kind of ending that, say, Dove Sono has, people because Dove Sono is very inward looking and quiet too, and then it has that that last section. We we have contrasting roles like Papageno and and the the um, Queen of the Night, which is sort of fun and comic, and then you have fireworks, and those are the thankful roles, but they're. But uh, we, I don't know, it's internal because we we feel proud of ourselves when we do a good job. Um, now, of course, we do need to talk about two other major characters who aren't represented on the panel. Andrew, um, how are the Queen of the Night and Zarastro characterized musically? Well, well, the, the the interesting thing about the Queen of the Night is that when you first meet her, as I say, you think this is a poor, terrible woman who's lost her daughter, and uh, and and the first part of her origin is quite beautiful, and so. You're the beginning of the opera. We think she's one of the good guys, you know. Um, and I've always thought the libretto was kind of a little confused on that. How do you know? How does such thing happen? But I think we're supposed to to see her as as a person who really does suffer. She's a mother who's lost her daughter. But then when she starts the the um, uh, when she starts the second part of the aria, when she says to Tamino, you've got to be the avenger, <laughs> you've got to be the, the savior of, of the daughter, then you begin to see why everyone's scared of her. When when Tamino asks 
Um, Papageno, at the beginning of the opera, if he's ever seen in The Queen of the Night, he basically says, are you crazy? <laughs> no one, you know, no one sees this woman and lives, you know. She's, so, she, so she's a very scary character. Uh, and then, of course, by the end, she's, uh, she's, she's trying desperately to, to um, encompass the downfall of Zarastro, and she fails miserably because her purpose is not noble. I mean, that's, that's the point. But she does have two of the most flashy arias in the business, that's quite true. And incredibly difficult, of course. Unbelievable, there are very few people alive at any given time who can sing the Queen of the Night really wonderfully well. Um, uh, so, and then Zarastro, of course, is, represents the Masonic element, the, the wisdom and the, the, the gravitas, to use an overused word, um, and, and the nobility uh, to which Tamino and Pamina are aspiring and with, to which they successfully aspire. So everyone lives happily ever after and, and Papageno gets his wife, um, who is cute and beautiful and just what he wanted. Um, so, uh, you know, it, and it's this sort of the, t the two couples, the, the lofty and the down to earth, I suppose you say that, that works so well. You know, in the, in the Bergman film, uh, Zarastro and the Queen of the Night are actually married, which, which made sense to me at the time. I guess I didn't know the piece as well then as I do now. Does that work for you, Nicole? I've done. So, and I, this is my eighth production of of flute, and and it's funny cause, because the directors will all have an opinion on that, and some of them will say, "Oh, you know, your dad is saying this. He's not my father. Sarastro's not my father. You know, okay, okay, that's where he gets it." But um, no, I mean, I never thought of them as being married until people started saying, "Well, this is a possibility." But well, who is your father, actually? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the Queen of the Night is not married, so <laughs> she's probably a very independent woman. Yeah. <laughs> who, who knows? In looking at cast lists from, say, 100 years ago at the Met, you find, and actually even more recent, like I think... Uh, as recently as 1926, you have people who were singing the roles of, say, Sieglinde or Brunhilde, who were ca cast as Pamina, and the tenors who were singing Siegfried were cast as Tamino. So, Charles and Nicole, are there indeed some moments in your roles where a certain heroic quality is actually called for? Yeah, I think so, absolutely. I think... Uh with both the roles, I know uh, with Tamino, it, it can be very heroic. I mean, uh, it depends. Some people like um, this more heroic feeling to it, or they like a Fritz Wunderlich more. But I don't think that either one, uh, you have to have one or the other. Um, I always look at it as a heroic character, personally, and I just do it with my lyric voice. Um, there are some sections where you can show off a, you know, it's more of a masculinity thing. It's not... Um, I never sing Mozart with my gloves on, you know what I mean? I, I try to sing it as passionately as I would, I don't know, Donizetti or Romeo and Juliet, it doesn't matter. I sing it the same way. Of course, you don't maybe portamento as much or something like that, you know, a couple stylistic things, but I have the same approach to it. And uh, especially when it gets to uh, the trial, right before the trials, uh, it's very heroic. Uh, 
And I think the tessitura is something that probably, because it doesn't have any high, high notes, uh, probably that's why those Wagnerian tenors liked it, because it wasn't so high and they're used to staying in that, uh, in that place. Uh, yeah, so I think that's why it works for both sides. Nicole, yeah. do, you, do you have, is there heroism that's part of this music? There is. Um, I, heroism, I, I think there's drama in her suicide scene, and there's, um, there's some music, even in the trial scene, that could be um, heroic, but I don't tend to, to think of this as a heroic part. I think the beauty of the role is that it can be sung by all voice types. I sort of grew up listening to the really light Kathleen Battle type singers singing this um, repertoire. And I tend to scale back my voice a little bit when I sing this. It's not, um, it's just a choice stylistically because I personally just prefer how I sound um, singing it a little bit more um, restrained in 90% of it um, than my normal uh, style of singing. But um, yeah, the, that's the great thing. I mean, I've heard different, lots of, Aaron Wall sang this last time and she's wonderful, big, uh, not dramatic, but a pretty, pretty rich soprano. Um, so that's, that's great. I mean, it's done across the board by different types. We haven't up to now said very much about the orchestra, Andrew. What is orchestral color like in this opera? Is it just all over the map? Well, uh, it's, it's extraordinarily varied. Um, you know, there, there are some numbers that, like the, the, um, the, uh, uh, the three boys' second little trio, the one in, in A major, uh, just is very lightly accompanied. Just um, basically the, the um, second violins, violas and cellos doubling the, the voices and the violin do, violins doing this whimsical little uh, and a few, few little additions of colour from the woodwind. On the other hand, you get something like the, the Oasis und Osiris uh, aria of Zarastro, which is scored for... Um, the strings are just violas and cellos, and then the, the two basset horns, which are the you know, the, the, the 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 version of the clarinet between the clarinet and the bass clarinet, which are the, the basset horns were used by very few composers, and I've never quite understood why, because it's a fascinating sound. Mozart used some, Strauss used used basset horn in um, several pieces. Um, and bassoons and trombones. So you get this very um, beautiful middle register um, sound which has incredible warmth and, and cohesiveness. Uh, uh, <coughs> um, <coughs> and it's, it's quite beautiful. And the fact, what always surprised me, he doesn't use the double basses in that one. Um, so actually you have a place where, where the cellos are playing sort of in the octave below middle C and just the bass trombone is playing underneath. So the, the textures are very unusual and original. Uh, and, of course, the use of the trombones is, is very significant because, he, you know, he saves them for the, the, the most um, um, solemn moments. Uh, one of the, again, marvellous use of the trombones is in the fantastic section for the two armed men which is this fugue when, you know, we know he studied Bach and Handel towards the end of his life. Of course, made a rather peculiar version of the Messiah um, uh, himself. 
but um, there's this fugue which sort of harks back to the Baroque era, but yet is couldn't be by anybody except Mozart. And he and the two are men sing the chorale in in um, octaves and double by the trombones. So I mean, it's it's um, there are some very special colours that you don't find anywhere else in Mozart's. Would work. you say that in no two numbers in this piece does he use the same combination of instruments as every single number its own little sound world uh, well I did read that somewhere oh yes and uh, yes from you it's, uh, <laughs> and you're, you, I'm, I'm sure Roger with your great gift for research you're, you're right it's never struck me but it could well be yes that each piece has different uh, kind of are you of... sure I said that <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to go back to characterizations for a minute and um, Stefan, you said to me the first time we talked about Papageno, you said that he was like your brother. Well, he could be, yes. How so? Well, difficult to explain. Well, actually, it was the first time I've sung Papageno was already 13 years ago and have sung this role more than 100 times since that point. So we know each other very well. <laughs> and, uh, well, basically, Papageno is a baritone. That's not a surprise because he's very, uh, how do you say, pieds sur terre? He has two, bo- two, pe- two feet, feet on earth, on the ground. And yeah. uh, he doesn't think about spirituality, about growing up in that way. He doesn't care, actually. And uh, I wouldn't say I don't care, but almost. <laughs> and I'm. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's difficult to explain, but well. You well, relate to him. Well, yes. <laughs> Do you find in your daily life that certain things come up that you sort of handle the way Papageno would handle <laughs> certain situations? I don't know. <laughs> no, because since I've met Papageno, I've met many others. That's made me also grow up like Peleas, Hamlet, uh, Wolfram. Uh, so it's a, Papageno is a perfect role for when we are 24. And as Peleas is a perfect role when we are 30 and Wolfram 35, etc., etc. Uh, it really fits to what most of us are at this uh, Ages, times, age. Right. Um, Charles, do you have anything in common with Tamino? Um, well, apart, yeah. Apart from the nobility. Apart from the nobility, <laughs> elegance, and no. no it's, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, well, I actually do. I, um, even though I'm not a kid anymore, I, I still feel this struggle sometimes between being impatient and wanting something and then other times realizing, you know, you just have to let things go as you know as they are. Um, I think that comes with age and wisdom. So uh, I, I uh, very much uh, feel for him because I understand him very much. You know, he he wants something now. You know, he um, he's very passionate, but at the same time, he uh, he learns. Well, he's smart enough and clever enough to know uh, when to take a step back and and you know. Set his set his mind on something. I understand that very much. I'm I'm Sicilian, but I'm not that Sicilian, so so I can understand him. Man. 
Nicole, what do you feel you have in common with Pamina? Well, like I said before, she can be rather trusting. So I think that's something that I, I tend to be maybe more trusting than I should. Um, and she's been burned a couple times, so I should learn a couple lessons from <laughs> Pamina. Um, but also she's, I think it's so funny because in the uh, suicide scene, she's just kind of recalling all these hor- horrible things that happened to her. And, oh, this is so horrible, this is so horrible. And... <laughs> She just has a moment of like drama tantrum, and I've definitely had those moments. So <laughs> I think um, those are like, you know, ways I'm, yeah, have things in common with her. Andrew, do you, as far as Mozart's particular temperament, do you have anything do you feel in common with him? <laughs> Besides being a genius? <laughs> Apart from having a bawdy sense of humor? Yes. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I think the, th- the thing. I, I mean, do you remember when when Amadeus came out? First sure. of all, the play, but then, of course, got more much more attention when the, when the movie came out. And I remember some people sort of writing to the Times or you know some of the music publications anyway, and sort of saying how shocking this was—the portrayal of Mozart as this silly sort of person who. Um, um, talked about flatulence in public and, you know, wrote, wrote a horn concerto with a lot of sort of silly, silly remarks in it for the, his friend who he constantly made fun of. Uh, and, and, and Dame Janet Baker wrote a marvellous letter back saying, basically, because Mozart wrote this incredible heavenly music, you know, people have always put him on a pedestal because they want him to be, you know, a perfect, um, unsullied human being. But what makes Mozart so great, I think, is his ability to see the foibles of people and and the different... It's like the marriage of Figaro is another great example where, you know, they have the lecherous count who is... Frustrated. You have the you have the clever Figaro, you have uh, and Susanna, and then the Countess, who in a sense is caught in the middle of all this, and who suffers greatly, but emerges um, from all the intrigues as the truly strong character in the piece. I think, um, and and you know then you have the. Oh, there's always the buffo element, so he he always managed to mix mix. I mean, the, the magic flute is the most extreme example in in the sense that we have the really down to earth, um, boastful, cowardly, um, but ultimately extremely lovable Papageno, uh, and then we have the you know the, the the two people who are really aspiring to to great things, and the reason that he could write such brilliant music for, for all these different characters and and in the music underline their their characters um, uh, and sort of define them is is what makes him so great um, and I've always thought it's, it's quite interesting to compare Mozart operas with Haydn's uh, and Haydn is a composer I adore and the, the operas are very well worth hearing uh, and performing 
in a sense, I've sometimes thought that you could take, in a, in a Haydn opera, you could take one character's aria and give it to another one and it wouldn't really make that much difference. But with Mozart, you could, you know, there, there, it's unthinkable that anybody could be singing, you know, Dove Sono, but the Countess. Uh, and, and that's what's so great about him. And, and, and what Dame Janet said was, you know, Mozart is so great because he was such an incredible mixture and he, and he had so much um so much of life in him that he didn't he didn't reject anything and i think that's um and i've tr always tried not to reject anything but um uh, <laughs> so i do have that in common with with mozart uh, and 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 also i feel he was who knows i think he was the sort of person that took his Art, his his music, his what, he, very very seriously. But he didn't take himself too seriously, and that's that's also what I tried to do. Um, uh, because, I mean, what what we do, the, we have we have such a gift given to us, and I always think this. And, and one of the things that I've always tried to do, as a as a musician and as a conductor. Is, is to make all the musicians I'm working with, whether they're singers or orchestras, f have this feeling of, of delight and, and, and privilege that we can do what we have to do. So I always try, to, I mean, in every way when I'm making music, I, I, I try to um, actually bring things out of people rather than forcing them on them. Um, uh, and because I do think that we're, we're so lucky to actually do what we do for a living. It's, it's incredible. And the minute I stop to feel that, I'll disappear so quickly that you won't see me for dust. But I, I hope it never happens. Well, no, it won't happen. Um, Going back to our tenor for a minute... I do find Tamino just so awfully serious all the time. Does he ever lighten up? Does he, does he ha ever have any... Also, does he ever show anything that you would call false? False? <laughs> he doesn't, Is he perfect? He does he just... Because no. really, I mean... He's just so good all the time. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, false? I... No, actually. I mean, in this, the way Mozart wrote him, I think, I, I mean, he has many different aspects of his character, but um, yeah, I wouldn't say false. He's very to his course, whether he thinks, you know, Zarastro's a bad guy at first when he's speaking with, with the speaker. Uh, you know, he's, he's really sure that that's what it is until he has the question. And then, you know, fairly well, rather quickly, he goes on to the trial saying, you know, I'm going to take a chance and do this. Um, he's definitely not perfect because, you know, he doesn't have all the answers, obviously. He is quite impulsive. Um, but uh, but he is very honest, though. So I, I, I do feel that he's completely honest with his feelings. So when he when he decides to do the trials, it's not easy for him, especially when Pamina comes back and he has to be silent. Um but he does it anyway, because he's looking at the big picture. So he, so he shows 
quite a bit of wisdom for his age also. Um, but I think that's because he's determined and he's looking for this higher level of being. But, um, yeah, he doesn't really lighten up, really. I mean, he doesn't... Well, he kind of laughs at Pap- Papageno when he has a lock on his mouth, kind of. But that's about it. <laughs> Other than that, uh, you know, he's kind of relaxed after he, he meets Papageno and... Um, you know, they have a little talk about it, but but not so much, really. He's quite serious. You know, he grew up in the palace, I guess, and uh, his father was tough, you know. And, um, yeah, he's pretty straightforward, un- unfortunately. There's other characters who can be a bad boy, but this one is not. <laughs> I, uh, Nicole, I don't know if this is really an answerable question, but a, c- a colleague uh, suggested this to me, and so I just had to propose it to you. How... Did Pamina turn out so well growing up with such a psychotic mom? <laughs> well, if you hear the Queen's first aria, she does a really great job convincing Tamina that she's good. Yeah. And I think, you know, basically throughout Pamina's entire life, she, she's waiting, she's waiting, she's waiting, you know, to... to you know, until there's really an opportunity for her to use her. And she's sort of grooming her to trust her in every aspect of life. So she's just an, an extraordinary actress. And I just don't think that Pamina ever saw that because she refers to her mother all the time as good, as as her loving mother. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you'd see a little seed of doubt there if she had any kind of suspicion. Have you ever done the role where you get to do the whole scene in Act Two with the Queen of the Night before the Queen's aria, where there's a fair amount of dialogue? Nope. It's always kind yeah. Of, and are we are we including much of that? We're not. It's a, it's no. a... <clears throat> uh, Well, I've done more than we do here, but not not very much. Um, it's just you you get some detail about the Queen, which is sort of interesting. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, I suppose one of the good thing about Queen of the Night as a mother, she obviously didn't spoil you. <laughs> not spoiled brat. She, she I, overprotected know. her. Yes. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask, Stefan, is there a quality of Papageno that you particularly value in this character that you just find the most sort of treasurable and endearing and charming? She's very... First degree, as we say in French, but he reacts very directly. Yeah, very he? directly to everything, yeah. and uh, so it's quite hard for him to change his mind about about Zarastro first, and about the Queen, and about himself. Uh, he's also following Tamino in that trials, but he. He missed everything, and that's quite touching. Because he tries, but and at the end, the only thing he wants is sleep, food, and basically a girlfriend. So <laughs> it makes him very human. And at that time, maybe, uh, Mozart's time, but maybe even f- uh, before, there were a tradition where the aristocrats' uh, characters were always the high voices. And the more common common were basses, low voices. So maybe it's still in that tradition. He's he's also one of those lovable people who, you know, he wants people to like him, doesn't he? I think, you know, it's like, you know, 
he wants to impress Tomino, so he says he killed the serpent, the Shlanger. So, and, and but you know, so you know, he's he's not entirely honest, but but you know, he doesn't. His dishonesty is. You can't be mad at him. No, you can't be mad at him. The line that I always wait for is in Act Two after Achifus, when after Pamina leaves, when he he says to her, he says to Tamino rather. You see, Tamino, I also can yeah. be quiet when I have <laughs> But it's to. the wrong moment. Yeah, yeah. You should have talked to her. Yeah. It's actually very poignant right there all right. the time because it's very sad and all of a sudden, Tamino is kind of serious in a way. says, I can also be quiet. You know, it's just, it's very touching. Now, one hugely important element of this piece is the fact that there are not recitatives as we have in the Mozart de Ponte operas. There are is spoken dialogue. So, Andrew, what sort of discussion do you think went on between Mozart and Schikaneder that made them decide that they were going to go with spoken dialogue instead? Well, I mean, this was a different tradition. This was a Zingspiel tradition, and he'd already, of course, written in Führung. Um, so, you know, um, and it was quite a popular um, for art form. You know, there were, there were a lot of people writing these things, so I don't think Mozart would have thought he was doing anything extraordinary. It was just, you know, and that's what Shigeneda's company did, I think. Um, they did, you know, it was kind of vaudeville, <laughs> was, uh, you know, uh, in a way. Then let me ask our three singers, what about speaking on stage? Is it a pleasure or is it a chore? <laughs> <laughs> it's not, I wouldn't say it's difficult because first the orchestra is quiet. <laughs> this is nice. Ah, finally. We, yeah, we have nobody to tell us we are late. Yeah. <laughs> so it's very good. Now, and let's say technically, it's it's quite comfortable. Yeah. For for male voices, because the the spoken voice and the singing song voice are quite the same level. For ladies, I'm not sure. Yeah, no, I'm glad you clarified that because yeah, for for women, and you'll hear some, with the third, the three ladies, some of them speak up here and some of them speak here, and it sort of depends on how comfortable you are projecting your chest voice out in the house, which can be a little bit. If it's hard to support that chest voice, or you know, it's a big house, um, and the acoustic doesn't necessarily always support just a regular spoken um, female voice. So for me, it's like I kind of do this mix, and sometimes it goes down, sometimes it goes up, and it's <laughs> kind of awkward for me. But um, you know, you just have to do it a lot and try to get as used to it as possible. And I know um, one of the, I think it was the Queen. You know, she had. Um, Audrey, you know, she was speaking and she actually had to cough and she said, I'm not used to the speaking thing so much. And I said, tell me either. This is, a, this is, you know, we are when we get on stage, but in the rehearsal, you know, you're like, God, there's a technique to this that you have to adopt. I, I, think, I think in general it is harder for, for, for women to, 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 to do dialogue than men. I don't know, I'm not sure exactly why, but it's... It's it's where where you place the voice, I think. And the problem, I suppose. you know, if you're a baritone, you just you just speak in the yeah. register. You normally speak. Well, Charles, do you put yours where you actually are? Yeah, singing? I mean, my voice is a little bit higher anyway when I speak. You know, which is normal for a tenor. But uh, I mean, I, I like to speak on stage. It's fun, you know, the dialogue. Um, but you know, there's in German. There's some tongue twisters sometimes. I still haven't been able to get wo wir sind. <laughs> It says, wo denkst du, wo wir sind? It's, but, you know, on, in the heat of battle, sometimes you're like, you know. 
it d- doesn't come out sometimes. But, you, you ever know. had so to this, add this, lib lines in Magic Flute? Well, my, de- my debut in Vienna was with Magic Flute, and we had two days of rehearsal. So I thought, okay, here I am in, you know, the, you know, Mozart City practically, you know, singing Zauberflute. You know, it was a little nerve-wracking. But I keep thinking, well, you know, Tamino's supposed to be a foreign prince, so a little accent probably, you know... <laughs> kind of works you know <laughs> well that was what I told myself anyway okay. <laughs> Stefan when you do the dialogue do you like to throw local jokes into it well I'm not German or Austrian so it's a bit difficult but some what do you mean some local jokes well depending on what city you were in I mean, oh okay are, yes well yeah uh, first time I sang it I, the director asked me to put some French words in it and I did. It was fun. But it was in France, so everybody understood. I have, uh, I have an English line to, to say here. Which is, oh, I which think is, I know it, but maybe, we, sh- we, maybe to... we shouldn't tell people. <laughs> no, 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 of course not. But uh, uh, I would call it slang. I, I look forward to the reaction because I'm still thinking it's maybe not a very good joke, but <laughs> I'm, I'm doing this because I'm asked to do this, but uh, I'm not convinced. I, just, I remember seeing it at the Vienna Volksoper and one local line after another after another passed me by completely. Mm-hmm. It was so frustrating. It was clearly the Papageno playing to the audience totally. So did you, have you done it in Vienna? Papageno? You haven't yet. No. I, one, actually, it's funny that you said that because when I did it in Vienna at that time, the, the Papageno was Austrian, and it was um, it was a scene where he was with uh, Papageno, but as an old woman, and she was, <laughs> and he looked at the audience and said, "The bird flew," and that was the time of the bird flu, <laughs> and uh, you know, <laughs> and that that it really worked, you know. <laughs> so oh, well. Um. <laughs> The most important props in this show are the magic flute, obviously, but also the magic bells. Mm. So, um, Charles and Stefan, why did the queen give these things to Tamino and Papageno when they only seem to be used against her all the time? (laughs) It doesn't quite make sense, does it? Uh, I don't know. I guess she was hoping for the best, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't expect, expect maybe. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Actually, it's a good question. Actually, I didn't. I haven't really thought about it like mm-hmm. that. That'd well, be... that's why I've always said there's some confusion in this libretto, yeah. and he, you know, he started off from one point of view, and I, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a bit of a mix-up. It's. I mean, there's all these foes after them, and they have to somehow defeat these foes to 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 rescue me. Rescue Pamina. So they have, I mean, she's just thinking that they're going to do it. There's, they're going to defeat the foes using these right. tools in order to rescue her. But. She thought it was going to beat Zarastra with a flute, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know what she did. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, we haven't said much about our um, production, which was originally by August Eferding, the late August Eferding, and there are all sorts of wonderful effects that are part of it. I mean, this is a really challenging piece to do, technically. I mean, there are a lot of different scenes in quick succession. So let me ask all of you what your favorite sort of technical challenge is in this particular production of The Magic Flute and how it's met. 
I don't have to deal with too much, except we all have to watch the trap doors. Yeah. You know, you have to know when they're set, or, you know, there's some points where you really shouldn't get too close, otherwise, yeah. <laughs> otherwise you fall through, you know. It's, it's a little bit nerve-wracking, but I Well, think it's like going from the end of the, the Nostilla Stilla, the, the, the final appearance of the Queen of the Night and the Three Ladies with Monostatos, and they, they go down a trap at the end, and then there's the, the orchestra has a very brief kind of passage that leads into mm. Zoroastro's last appearance. And, you know, we were rehearsing the other day, and John Coleman, our, our wonderful uh, uh, stage manager, said to me, can you play this any slower? <laughs> <laughs> to which I said, of course, no. <laughs> but so, that, yeah, there are... Of course, my other technical challenge is to get the orchestra to shout together. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. You remember? He's, he's trying to escape, and there's, there's a... We haven't made it yet. Oh, they yelled so no, no, we, yeah, we, have, we haven't rehearsed it with the orchestra oh, yet, so... Good. So they all... They yelled... Zurich, right. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah. Stay back. They stay back, yeah. Well, what do you consider, based on what you've seen of it so far... What do you consider the production's particular strengths in the way it presents this piece? Anyone? It's a very traditional pro- production, and I like it because it tells the story at it is, as it is, and it's very important. It, it consider, uh, I think the... the, the August Eferding. Yeah, I think he was considering that the audience didn't know the story, and he had to tell the story as it has been written, which is very good. I have made a completely crazy production a few years ago where the director cut the dialogues, so it made any sense anymore. Nobody understood the production, nobody understood the the story. It was really beautiful and impressive on stage, but what for? (laughs) Just aesthetic and it's not enough. Well, I, th- I think whatever opera you're directing, you have to assume that there are people there who've never seen it before. Yeah, it's like these people say, oh, well. You know, I mean, it's, and I've, we've, we've done productions here sometimes, not too many, when, you know, if you didn't know what the story was, you wouldn't have un- understood what was going on. Yeah. And that's, I think that's, that, to me, that's wrong. <laughs> that's, so that's my first criterion. Does this production tell the story? And I mean, then, I've seen magic. Then you can do whatever, what you want. You've probably all seen magic flutes that take place in an environment that looks like it's underwater or that's in outer space. Or Peter Sellers' production I did at Glyndebourne, where where, the, where Zarathustra and, and his cohorts were in an underground parking garage in <laughs> in, in, Lo, in Los Angeles, of course. Yes, people wearing like jeans and t-shirts, right? I seem to recall from the pictures. Yeah. Well, Nicole, you said you've been in eight productions of it. This is my eighth. This yeah. is your eighth. Have there been some completely crazy? Do you know what? I, I've done a lot of crazy productions, but never for the Magic Flute. They've always been traditional, which I'm really happy about. <laughs> I was going to say that uh, my debut in Paris was with Stefan. We sang Taubeflute. Um, Bob Wilson. Yeah. yeah, Bob Wilson production. If you've seen some of his productions, uh, they're very beautiful uh, visually, um, but the movement is very strange. You know, it's very hard. And I remember uh, singing these Bildnis, and we were doing I don't know, or you know, maybe piano tech or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I was have to hold like this, and he was on his god mic, you know, from the 
from the back of the hall say, Charlie, Charlie, Charlie. Okay, move your hand. This one. No, 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 the other hand. Okay. I don't see him. He said, okay, now turn, turn, turn it this way. No, 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 no. Put it back. Put it back. Right there. Remember that? Don't forget that. That's exactly perfect. And I was like, like a hieroglyphic, you know. And, liter- and, he, and I was thinking, how the hell am I supposed to remember this position as opposed to this? You know? But apparently the audience gets a real uh, visual treat. It's actually very powerful. The, yeah, it's, it's, it's really beautiful. But, mm. uh, you know, when you're on stage, you know, you know you, it's really hard to do that. It was a difficult pr- production mm. to do. But uh, apparently beautiful. I didn't see it, you know. I was, <laughs> <laughs> Stefan, your first was in Aix-en-Provence. Was that a little bizarre? Yeah, true. No, it was, it was very good. Uh, it was my first. I don't have a particular relationship, and uh, I really loved it. It's the production I've made the most. We had 70 performances of that. 70? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and uh, the first time was in Aix-en-Provence. It was outdoor. So we had the, the sky, the, the stars. It was really beautiful and poetic. We also had the frogs uh, <laughs> making noise. So That's nice. <laughs> it was special. We have to um, close because there's a Boris performance in half an hour. So I want to... You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org.